Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Degas Impressionism in the Millinery Trade at the St. Louis Art Museum. My lead guest is Simon Kelly, who, along with Esther Bell at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, curated the exhibition. It melds the social history of modernizing 19th century Paris with the ways in which painters, especially Edgar Degas, captured one of the city's boomingest industries, the manufacturing and selling of hats, an industry that was a gateway into the city, employment in the bourgeoisie for tens of thousands of French women. The exhibition is at the St. Louis Art Museum through May 7th, when it will travel to San Francisco's Legion of Honor. The show's excellent catalog was published by the two museums and Delmonico Prestel. Amazon has it for $48. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Montclair Art Museum curator Gail Stavitsky talks about Matisse and American art, her new exhibition on the impact Matisse's work has had on American artists. But first, Simon Kelly, after the break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velázquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. The Getty's Winter Book Sale is happening now. From a peek into the life of Cezanne through his personal letters, to an examination of L.A.'s modern architecture, to delightful children's books, beautifully illustrated exhibition catalogs, and scholarly art historical publications, there is something for the artist and everyone. Get 50% off selected titles through April 2nd at shop.getty.edu. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents... Dimensions of Black, a collaboration with the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art at its downtown location through April 30th. Drawn from the museum's holdings, this exhibition of more than 30 works by African American artists from the 1960s to today traverses crucial interests and perspectives that have shaped the art of our time. The collaboration presents a series of accompanying programs throughout the exhibition. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And we're back. Simon Kelly, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Uh, thanks, Tyler. It's good, good to be here. Degas, people know, but what are milliners? And can you give us a sense of how the trade or that sector functioned in, in 19th century Paris? Well, milliners are you know, essentially um, people who make hats. Of course, in, in 19th century France, they were generally women. I think, you know, working on this show, probably what surprised me the most was just how enormous the millinery trade was in 19th and early 20th century Paris. You know, I spent quite a bit of time uh, looking through the Parisian commercial directories and actually sort of adding up the number of milliners that you find there. In in 1882, for example, you can find 944 milliners. You know, there are 41 today in Paris. So uh, the the, the trade was exponentially larger uh, in the 19th century. That must have been like one milliner for every five or 600 Parisians. Right, and if, if actually, if not more, really. I mean, you know, because you have to remember, in the, I mean, that, those are the numbers that are, are listed in in the in the directory. But then there will be several workers actually working for each of those milliners. So, 
and in fact, Octavio Zan, one of the writers at the time, talks about you know eight thousand you know workers in the millinery trade. So, you know, it, it was a really significant number. And and you know, one of the other things that that I was interested in is are the supporting trades, you know, the flower makers, the artificial flower makers, uh, you know, the the plume preparers, you know, the the haberdashery supplying the ribbons, those kind of secondary trades, which which were you know supporting these often incredibly complex you know, hats in, in terms of their materials. Just to build out the, the role of milliners within Paris, what was their status, if you will, within, in, within the fashion industry? I mean, they were really the elite uh, workers within the fashion industry, and they had a status which, you know, was higher than the, the couturier or the dressmakers. And you often see, you know, in the discourse around, uh, around the garment in, industry, a description of milliners as artists, or as true artists, uh, and that was because you know their their hats were described as creations. You know they 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 were works in which you know significant creativity was involved. The the premiere you know evolved these designs with you know complex trimmings, these ornate plumes, you know complex artificial flower designs, you know complex ribbon designs. So uh, you know it's interesting to read the, the the critical discourse around fashion at the time, but. Uh, the milliner was certainly seen as as a kind of elite worker in the gar- in the garment trade. So Degas and his peers make lots of paintings and pastels of, of milliners, uh, as do Parisian printmakers. For you and your co-curator Esther Bell in San Francisco, what was the reason you were interested in doing a show about Degas and his peers in millinery? Was it was it just the paintings, or was it kind of a broader social? And art historical story. I mean, I think it's both. I mean, for for me, I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm certainly interested in the paintings and their kind of radical uh, formal qualities. And you know, some I I you know I, I feel that some of the the millinery works are some of the most you know experimental you know compositions that that, that Dugar made. But you know, I was all I'm you know most of my sort of curatorial projects, I'm always interested in placing artists and their works within a broader, you know, historical and socioeconomic context. So, you know, I, I was interested in this exhibition in exploring that context or relationship of the the milliners to labor, the the kind of the idea of, of the hats as commodities and, you know, thinking about that, uh, that broader context. So, I, you know, I guess in answer to your question, a sort of balance between uh, an interest in the objects themselves their formal qualities, but also an interest in in the broader uh, context. Well, let's jump off into a little bit of that broader context then. In your catalog essay, you include a discussion of and an image of Degas' The Laundress from 1869. It's in Munich now. Is there a relationship between Degas' interest in laundresses and milliners? Uh, there is. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, broadly, of course, I mean, his his project at this time is is one of you know the representation of Parisian modern life, and and within that uh, context, you know, working women is you know the key elements. You know, he he actually represents laundresses before he represents women, uh, uh, before he represents milliners rather. But you know they're essentially related as you know different kinds of elements of of Parisian labour. You can also make connections, I think, between the you know the materiality of the objects on which they're working, whether it be the you know the linen of 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 the laundresses' work, or the kinds of materials uh, that you see, you know, in the hats on which milliners are working. So, you know, I think there's a definite connection between, uh, you know, between laundresses and milliners. 
this is probably a fairly specious observation, but when I read your passage on laundresses and ironing linen, for example, and, and, and linen kind of flows out over some of these Degas paintings, and then thought about the way Degas painted the hats the milliners were working on or selling, I thought I was, I, I couldn't help but thinking of one as Degas painting canvas and the other as the palette, almost like establishing a relationship between kinds of labor. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, that makes, that makes sense to me. I mean, the, and it's interesting that one of our, our catalog authors, Susan Heiner, she actually compares the, uh, the hat in the St. Louis painting, uh, Milliner's, and the way that that's represented to, to an artistic palette. So, so you can probably make an interesting, you know, comparison uh, between the, you know, Dugas imaging of actual hats and, and similarities in color to his, to his actual palette. We'll, we'll come back to labor a little later on. You know, one other thing that's in a lot of these paintings are, are, are mirrors that we see from both sides of the mirror, if you will. And windows, do either of those signify or indicate or represent modernity in, in a way that would have been particularly new or fresh? You know, a key, key part of the exhibition is, is, is the way in which women express their, their agency in the 19th century through, through shopping and, you know, and, and within the context of shopping through the fitting session. You know, so I, I argue in my essay that, you know, Dugas images of women trying on hats fall within a sort of broader discourse uh, around the growing independence of women. So, you know, within that context, certainly the mirror uh, plays a key element in the way, the ways that women you know, image themselves and represent themselves and, and the ways also that Dugas creates this incredible vocabulary of gesture uh, as they try, you know, the hats on before mirrors. You know, for me that it, it was important to place, you know, Dugas' work within that, that broader context of, of changing attitudes to uh, women in the 19th century and there's a lot of negative discourse around that and a lot of negative discourse around shopping and you know women seen as being frivolous and you know breaking up families by their you know by their by their focus on kind of excessive shopping but I, I you know I wanted to argue that Dugas works are actually more empathetic and, and showing women in a more positive sense, you know, thinking about their, their choice of hats in an actually very rational uh, sort of meditative way. One could almost describe these paintings as extended discourses on the role of the new role of women in French society. So, so between, you know, the, the, over the last 40 or 50 years of the 19th century, how has the role of women in, in French society changed? And other than in shopping, how do we see that in in these paintings? Within these paintings specifically, I mean, I, I think I think more generally, what what you're seeing is a sort of, I, I guess, growing independence in terms of movement uh, of women. I mean, the sort of the traditional idea used to be that you know women had to be chaperoned, and in terms of their you know their travel around Paris, they needed they needed somebody to accompany them. I mean, more recent sort of discourse and writing has has really questioned that idea and, and emphasised the extent to which a lot of women you know were able to to travel around uh, around Paris independently. So, I think that that idea of of the independence of women is something which you know which Dugas is tapping into in these works. I mean, a lot of them do show you know single women you know trying on on hats in you know, in shops or, or, or for that matter, making hats. So I think, you know, more broadly, as, you know, as I said before, there's an emphasis on, on the kind of independent, independent agency uh, of women and, and a kind of focus, 
you know, and a focus on that. There aren't just shoppers in these pictures. There are lots of women working. You have a, a stat in your catalog essay that is just kind of astonishing. O- over the last four decades of the 19th century, a million women entered the French workforce for the first time, and 80% of those workers went to work in fashion. I mean, independently, each of those numbers is kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's across the whole of France. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that is, and again, I mean, it speaks to the, you know, the the extent of the trade, not only in terms of, you know, the couturier or, or, or milliners or, you know, makers of, of lingerie, that was another, you know, underwear, that was another big trade, but also the importance of the secondary trades, you know, that we mentioned before, you know, there were 25,000 artificial flower makers in Paris, you know, there, there, there were really extensive, enormous trades supporting millinery, which, you know, are an important, you know, part of the, the discourse here. So what's the best way to begin to work our way through Degas and his peers' work here? Is it chronologically? Is it thematically? What What is kind of the way of considering this work that makes sense? I mean, I, I, in, I actually thought about both. And, you know, certainly chronologically, it's interesting to think about the you know, the development in Dugas' work from you know, his earlier millinery works are much more mimetic and naturalistic. And, and then you sort of trace the, the progression to his later imagery, which becomes very abstract, you know, in, in his late works. I mean, there's a, there's a pastel which we have, which we're able to, to get from the Musée d'Orsay, his, his last pastel on the theme of millinery, where, where the way the face is represented is incredibly abstract. You have these, these kind of red striations uh, coming down the the pastel, which are completely non-representational. You know, I think that certainly that chronological approach is is interesting in understanding Dugas' formal development. I mean, I think conceptually in understanding the themes in his work, you know, and a, a thematic approach was actually more more interesting to me. You know, thinking about what the milliner actually meant, what the consumer actually meant, what the hats, you know, actually signified. So, you know, I think it, it sort of depends on how you want to approach, you know, Dugas' work here. Well, let's start in in the shops where 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 the show starts. The show starts with with the Great Art Institute of Chicago painting the millinery shop. It's a painting with a very specific person, unlike the the abstract abstracted figure you mentioned in that late pastel. Who is she, or who might she be, and why this particular viewpoint, if you will? Uh, we I mean, we don't know. We don't know who she is, actually. I mean, we 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 know relatively little about the specific models that, that Dugas used in his his millinery paintings and pastels. I mean, a lot of the the women do have red hair, pretty much exclusively, and and you know that's led to a lot of discussion that Mary Cassatt, who had this you know copper colored hair, could have been the the model. Um, and it's possible, although you know it doesn't look particularly like Cassatt the. Uh, the subject in the millinery shop, but certainly could have been, you know, could have been involved in in in, in this pastel in some way. And I think, you know, this this pastel is interesting for me in the way that the the identity of the, you know, the sitter changes. And you know, my feeling is now that it is a, it is a milliner. There's been discussion as to whether it's a milliner or a, a consumer, somebody trying on the hat. But you know, I, my feeling is it's probably a premiere. You know, an upper class, a, a relatively, you know, affluent milliner. She's wearing an, an olive green. You know, wool dress. She has fur trim uh, around her her neck. And interestingly, she she seems to be actually having a a hat pin kind of placed between her lips. So I think she's looking at a hat that she's actually working on. 
But I think, you know, an, another thing that's been really fascinating about this exhibition is that for the first time we managed to bring together the, the pastel, one, well, one of the pastel studies for this painting together with the actual painting. And, and in the study, you can see that the woman's dress is completely different and she is, you know, quite obviously a, a customer trying on a hat. So I, I think there's a transition in, in Dugas' process here, you know, whereby the identity of, of the sitter changes from customer to milliner. In both this pastel and in the painting in Chicago, Degas is looking down very clearly, plainly from above at both the human figure in, in the work and at the hats. And this is something, this is consistent with the way he represents the shops um, in painting after painting over many years. Any ideas on why he's always, you know, painting as if he's, you know, standing up on a box and looking down? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, he is, I mean, he's somebody who's, I mean, his, his whole, you know, projects in a way is about, you know, trying to su subvert compositional norms, if you like, and, and thinking about alternative viewpoints. I mean, I thought about photography, you know, as, as a possible you know, alternative mode of looking that informed that, that kind of work. And, you know, as we know, Dugger was, you know, interested in photography. He produced quite a significant body of photography in the 1890s and was certainly interested in photography before that, you know, before that time. Probably a large number of photographs by Dugger that, you know, that we just don't know about or have been lost. You know, there are several that, that are referenced in the correspondence that we don't, we don't still have. So, so I think his practice as a photographer is kind of interesting. And, you know, in, in general, you know, Dugas, he's very different to somebody like Monet, for example, whose, whose focus is almost exclusively on painting. I mean, if you think about Dugas' broader practice, he's not just looking at painting and pastel. He's a great printmaker. He's a great sculptor. Uh, he's, he's also, you know, a very accomplished photographer. So he's looking at, a, you know, at his art in a very kind of holistic way. Um, but I do think his, his photography, you know, is, is significant in terms of that kind of alternative sort of mode of looking, if you like. You and Esther Bell have not just given us paintings and, and pastels and prints. You've given us hats. Talk me through the decision to include hats in the show, why they're important to show with the artworks. I mean, I think both, both Esther and I were, you know, we, we were interested in, in exploring the sort of wider visual culture here. You know, I, I think had we not in, included hats, I mean, the, to me, and I, I think for Esther too, the exhibition just would, you know, n not have felt whole. I mean, we were certainly interested in, in exploring, you know, the potential relationships between the particular hats in, in Dugas' works and those of his, his circle and, you know, specific hats. And there are a number of, of hats in the show which, you know, are very close uh, to those in, in, in the images in the show. So we were looking, you know, at at those kind of specific connections as, as far as you could do that because you know we don't know we know that Dugas went to milliners on the Rue de la Paix but we don't know which specific milliners he went to we know Manet went to uh, the, the Viro milliner for example so in his case we do know the specific milliner and we try to make connections uh, in the catalogue between Manet and Viro but in Dugas case it is it is it is more general but I think having the hats in the show you know to go back to that theme of materiality uh, is important because when you when you actually see the hats and you themselves and you see the the complexity of the materials you know whether it be the you know the sort of drooping elegance of an ostrich plume or the sort of rugged texture of a straw hat or or the you know the sort of the the, the satin sheen of a of a ribbon i mean you you kind of need to actually see the hat itself to understand the way that that Duga tried to you know to represent the hat and 
in a lot of his work, there's a kind of important mimetic quality to them. He's trying to use pastel or paint to actually render the very textures of, of the, you know, the hat itself. Especially with plumage, yeah. Especially with ostrich feathers, even more specifically. Is there any contemporary 19th century French discourse around these hats that gets them close to the status, if you will, of sculpture or the fine arts? Well, there is. I mean, you know, there, there, and there, you know, writers like Cousin and Arsène Alexandre, you know, particularly at the end of the 19th century, they're talking about these hats as, you know, quote creations. So, you know, there, there is an idea. I mean, probably one of the most interesting sort of books around this is Le Reine de Leguie by Alexandre, where he talks about, you know, the queens of the needle trade and talks about milliners as artists in their own right and you know, effectively their their hats as as being sculptures. So, you know, there is a significant discourse which is is developing around around that idea. And you know, you can argue that I mean Dugar he wrote about Beatrice Morisot that she makes paintings as she would hat. Um he's making some kind of you know obviously making some kind of parallel there between the you know the making of of the painting art object and the making of the hat. So I mean I think that's interesting to me and, and suggests the the kind of you know relatively elevated status that he was according to the mill in there. And, and I think that's, I mean, you only have to look at the, the artworks themselves and and look at the kind of absorbed and focused way that he represents milliners. And to me, that that is, you know, generally pretty empathetic and, and more broadly complicates, you know, that idea was too around Dugar as being, you know, misogynistic in his, his representations of women. My guest is Simon Kelly. We'll be right back after a break. The exhibition Unfinished Conversations, new work from the collection, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. See works by artists from around the world, from Cairo to St. Petersburg, and from The Hague to Recif, art that reflects on today's events and issues, exploring themes of social protest, the effect of history on the formation of identity, and how art juxtaposes fact and fiction. Visit MoMA.org for more information and tickets, and plan your visit today. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. presents Yoyoi Kusama Infinity Mirrors, the first exhibition to explore the evolution of the legendary artist's iconic installations. Featuring an unprecedented six of her dazzling environments, Infinity Mirrors is the most significant North American tour of her work in nearly two decades, opening February 23rd and on view at the Hirshhorn through May 14th. Visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. And now back to my conversation with Simon Kelly. So we have the hats, we have Degas and his interest in the shops. And, and these are things that Degas is painting in the late 60s, early 1870s. It takes until the early 1880s for Degas to really kind of zoom in on the consumer, if you will, on, on, on women trying on hats. At the risk of asking an, an unanswerable question, any guesses as to why it takes Degas so long to focus on 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 the buyer on the shopper. I mean, it's difficult to know for for sure. I mean, you can certainly, if you look at his correspondence, you can see uh, a growing interest in you know in the discourse around commerce in in the 1870s. You know, you see his interest in in the representation of cotton, for example, in the cotton market. You know, the famous painting of the cotton market at New Orleans, um, which he sold to the... it's at Harvard. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm not thinking about that one. I'm sure there are two. There's that one, but there's also the one that was sold to the Paul Museum, which was the first time that Dugas was 
you know, sold her work to a, 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 a French museum in, in, in the late 1870s. That was a really important moment for him, you know, in terms of his career. And, you know, I, I think, you know, that, and that took place in the late 70s, I think that success, you know, probably encouraged, and that is, you know, that's more men than women, but it is, it is thinking about the act of, sh you know, the, obviously the cotton is related to the act of shopping and commerce. So, uh, so I think that success probably, you know, encouraged his, his interest in themes of commerce. And, and it, it's a, you know, the, the, the interest in, in trade in, in, in Dugas work is a kind of fascinating element. He's at the same time, he's working on, you know, on the millinery paintings and pastels is also representing men at the stock exchange in, in, in Paris. So I think, you know, in the late seventies, eighties, you can see that growing interest in millinery within the context of his broader work and, and the growing interest in, you know, in commercial and trade themes. Is there one or two pictures of women shopping for hats or women trying on hats that you think are particularly notable or good? I mean, I love the one in the in the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts uh, uh, at the Milliners, which is you know Dugas. I mean, it's a work that you know in the catalog I, I redated. I mean, I, I I think it was begun in the 18, early 1880s and then you know reworked in the early 18 in the late 1890s. It becomes very abstract and it's a work which is just to me so kind of bizarre actually and, and kind of enigmatic and particularly in the way you know that the face of the uh, of, of the woman shopper you know is actually reduced essentially to a blank oval you know that and that as represented in the mirror in the painting. yeah and as represented in the mirror and you know and that that to me is you know then you start to wonder why is why is he doing that i mean it's just it's just such an, an an interesting you know conceit, if you like. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, one other thing to say about these these works, like that one or the St. Louis Milliner's painting, is that we don't know for sure they were finished. You know, they, all of these paintings were in, you know, or certainly those two paintings, the pastel that I mentioned from Orsay earlier, that they were all in Dugas studio at his death. You know, they have the they have the studio stamp, so we don't know for sure that that Dugas ever completed them, but. But certainly, in terms of the, you know, the one with the the, the painting with the, the reflection of the blank face. I mean, is is that is, is that Dugas as as kind of proto abstract painter, or is it saying something more, you know, more broadly about, you know, the the relationship of, of between the individual and and capitalism at the time? It, it almost, I mean, I, you can almost read it in a kind of Marxist sense as a you know, some kind of alienation and the way that the sort of self is is kind of emptied out, if you like, within this you know, rapidly expanding, you know, capitalist consumer system. I mean, that maybe that's reading too much into it, but I think it's, you know, it's interesting to think about it in that context. You know, I had in my notes that it seems like as Degas' engagement with millinery as a subject goes on, that his interest in portraying faces, if you will, be, uh, in, in those paintings becomes less and less. That That could be, as you said, of course, he just didn't finish those paintings. We don't know, but it, but you know, certainly in the St. Louis painting, he's just not interested in, you know, bothering with faces, if you will. <laughs> and and the Virginia painting, I'm glad you brought it up. It's one of my favorite paintings in the show. It it's full of kind of every painterly trick in the bag. I mean, a diagonal composition, big flat planes of color that push everything toward the picture plane. And in, in addition to wanting to, to uh, bring up the, the, the faceless hat-trying-on person, which you already did, the one thing in this painting that stumps me a bit is what is going on at, in the middle at the far, far right? <laughs> I mean, the hat, the, the cropped, 
form of the hand. I mean that that yeah. yeah. I mean that's really that that is really you know I think that's an important part of the work and you know of course I mean it speaks to Dugas' fascination with you know cropped compositions. Um, but if you look if you look carefully at that hand, I mean you can just see how how stylized it is and. You know, I, I wonder. I mean, it looks to me that it's been posed, and and of course these works. I mean, I you know I think they're, you know, they're they're constructed in 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 Dugas studio. I think it's probably likely that he had a hand model, you know, for that particular hand. You know, just as a lot of these hats. I mean, I, I he you know my feeling is that he developed his own hat hat collection and probably used. You see similar hats in similar, in the same you know similar paintings and pastels. But there is a kind of you know fictive element here, which is uh, which is interesting. But I mean, he was interested in. I mean, the, you know, one of the the few quotes that we have from Dugar about his, you know, his 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 visiting uh, a millinery or, or a dressmaking shop is when he accompanied uh, Madame Strauss, Jean-Pierre Strauss, to a a, a a fitting session at a dressmaker in probably in the in the late 1880s, and he 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 talked about his fascination with the red hands of, of the of the shop girl who holds the hat pins. So, you know, he makes that specific. You know, reference to her hands, and and he was fascinated by gestures. You know, that's a that's a key part of his project here. So, you know, I think the hands are. I mean, I'm you know, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I think it's a key key part of the work too. So, there's a whole section in in the catalog, and I presume in the show, on on plumes, on 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 hats, feathers, and such. So, before we talk about artists and and their representation of such plumes on hats, why? How did that happen? How did it happen? I mean, it, it, it happens because, I mean, just on a very basic level, I mean, plumes have this kind of wonderful, you know, sculptural quality, particularly ostrich plumes, which can be, you know, very, very grand and, and, and droop in an you know, incredibly elegant way. And of course, the feathers them, themselves beyond the, you know, the quality of, of their shape have uh, these incredible colors, you know, and, and sort of iridescence and, you know, there, there's a discourse at the time which, you know, associates feathers uh, with femininity and, you know, women wearing plumes as a way to to enhance their femininity. I mean, it's, of course, it's complex to us today because, you know, so many birds were, you know, were, were, were killed for the millinery trade. So there's a, it is a complex subject and it, and it did lead to, you know, the passing of conservation laws, the order one society, etc. But, you know, on, on a basic level, I mean, I think, I think, you know, plumes became an, an, an essential part in, in, in the design of the architecture of the hat. And there were efforts, there were contemporary efforts to, to ban plume trading and, 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 and such, if I remember right. There were, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the, the, the French government, because of the power of the, the millinery, millinery industry in France, you know, there was quite a, a lot of resistance. A, a lot of these, you know, the laws banning the uh, the importation of plumage actually came, you know, from outside of France in 1913. America, you know, bans the importation of exotic plumage as a similar law passed in, in England, you know, in the early 1920s. So, you know, th- those those laws have, have a massive impact on on the French millinery trade and, you know, really sort of crippled the, the, the kind of export business of, of that trade. You know, that's the export, but of course, uh, I mean, the import to me is, is fascinating here and, and the way that you have this, this global trade in, in plumage, which just expands exponentially in the late 19th and early 20th century. And you see, you know, ostrich plumes, just to take that example, as, as coming particularly from Africa and, you know, the Cape Province in, in what is now South Afri- Africa and, 
And, you know, I was interested in relating that to sort of broader ideas about colonialism and colonial trade and the way that, you know, plumage fits within that broader discourse. You know, a lot of the plumes are coming from, you know, the British colonies in, in, in the south of Africa. And then the French are trying to compete with that by developing their own, you know, ostrich farms in Algeria, which actually weren't very successful. But there, there is a kind of colonial competition element here and, and also just the kind of the whole scramble for Africa, which is going on at this time and, the you know, the attempt to seize different countries which could add to that plumage trade so so you know seeing plumage within the broader context of the other you know the the problematic trades like ivory for example which were also going on at that time your colleague uh, kimberly chrisman campbell has a catalog entry on a hat from around 1912 that uh, it's a hat with feathers and such and an eyeball arranged to make it look like the bird is is there's a bird actually sitting on the hat and and this catalog entry notes that in 1911, or by 1911, the Paris fashion industry was responsible for the deaths of 300 million birds per year. Yeah, yeah, I, I just yeah, that's a lot of a lot of birds. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I my my feeling is that is that I mean that number is is, is hyperbolic. You know that that's a number which was, was I mean it was quoted in 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 a news in a paper at the time, but I haven't actually found any evidence to you know, to support that specific number. So, you know, certainly millions of, of, of hats uh, of, of birds were killed for the trade. There's no doubt about that. I think that number is hyperbolic. This section of the show seemed to argue that artists really liked painting feathers. Any, any particular favorites or, or uh, particularly good examples of artists finding feathers irresistible? I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, the Dugab, uh, the Degas Pastel Chalamodiste uh, from the Musée d'Orsay, which has a you know fascinating close-up composition, as if as if you're looking through uh, a shop window. You know, Degas seems to be you know fascinated in in representing the complexity of the ostrich plume and you know the, the individual barbs, uh, even the barbule, you know, coming off the barb, and and really looking closely, you know, at the texture. And the makeup of the plume, and you also get it's a very kind of tactile sense. You get a sense that you know Dugas really, you know, looked closely, but also really touched and understood the, you know, the the, the texture of, of of these feathers. So, you know, I, I think you know that particular one is is a good one, and and that's also one that was you know it was, it was exhibited at the time. It was it was exhibited in London. It was discussed, and uh, you know, and attention was was actually drawn to the way that he represented the you know the feathers in that work and and the sort of mimetic quality of them. We'll have images of all of these on manpodcast.com. I was surprised to see uh, a section in the catalog on men's hats because I, they seem different. Were, were the same people who were making hats for women making hats for men? Uh, no. I mean, that, that's, you know, the, 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 the Chapelier were, were, the, were the hat makers who were making the, the men's hats. And that was, you know, a very different industry. And it was largely you know, men who are making those hats. But it was significant, you know, that we, again, you know, looking through the commercial directory in the 1880s, you find, you know, 655 uh, Chapelier uh, listed in, in Paris. So it was a really significant industry in itself. It didn't have the complexity in terms of the, the materials, you know, and, and the variety of of design, if you like. I mean, there are, there are, there are nuances, of course, in the top hat and the particularly in the top hat and the size of the top hat and, the, you know, the types of materials, but certainly not to the extent uh, as you're finding in, in women's hats at the time. You mentioned flower makers earlier on. How are painters, Degas included, interested in, in, in flowers on, on milliners' hats? Is it 
sometimes an excuse for painterly flourish and and touch? How do different things that are on the hats become useful to painters? No, I mean I think that's that's interesting. I, mean, I think you know Dugar is he's he's he certainly is interested in in flowers on the hats, and there you know there are significant examples of that. I think actually I mean I haven't mentioned Renoir yet, and you know Renoir is is actually quite an important figure in this story too, just because of the the, the extremely large number of of images of hats that he produced, many of which, you know, do do show flowered hats. So I think he he had a particular interest in in that subject, actually more so than Dugar. You know, I, I would argue Remo, you, you don't see in Renoir's work images of 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 the the production of hats as as you do in Dugar's work. But you know, there are, there are large numbers of of works of women actually wearing hats. So, and, and I think you know, Rem, there's an interesting quote by by Renoir's biographer Gustave Coquier, where he talks about Renoir as an erotomaniac uh, about hats, and you know, he really thought about hats and their materials in in an erotic kind of sensual context, which you know makes sense to me when you see the you know the sort of whole of, of, of Renoir's work. But you can argue that you know the way he represents flowers and, and plumes for that matter. You know, has a has a kind of quasi erotic context to it. So, how often did Degas exhibit these often kind of informal feeling paintings and pictures of milliners and shoppers and and the trade? And how were they received? I mean, the the, fir the first evidence that we have is is the second impressionist exhibition in 1876. He showed a a work which was titled Modiste uh, in in the in the exhibition catalogue. Nobody has been able to identify, you know, that that work for sure. It's perhaps possible that it might be the Getty painting in an earlier uh, iteration, but uh, there's no, you know, there's no certainty about that. But that that is the, you know, the first evidence of his exhibiting and the Middle East. And then in the early 1880s, the, the works here in Durand Ruel's uh, exhibitions of 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 work in London, you know, John Orwell, the, the dealer is a key figure here. He's he's buying, you know, a significant number of the Milner uh, pastels. And then, you know, the 1886 Impressionist exhibition is an important moment because two of the pastels are, are shown there. Uh, the the woman trying on a hat at the uh, at the Met and the and the Little Milliners, um, as it's called, the Petit Maudis, the Nelson Atkins Museum. So, you know, that that's an important moment, and 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 the sort of discourse around. Yeah, around Dugas' work, then it, it is interesting because, you know, if you look at it, you start to understand the kind of original radical charge that I mean, you know, these these works, uh, you know, Dugas' works in general is often kind of reduced to a sort of pretty commodity, but but at the time it had a, you know, had a very radical charge, and and, that, and certainly that was the case in in those in those two millinery you know two millinery pastels and a lot of that was about you know the way they were perceived in terms of their realism and you know subverting you know more conventionally idealized norms you know and critics described his 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 women his in the mill and the pastels as as squirrel like or, or monkey like so you know there there is a, a actually a fascinating discourse around the, around the millinery pastels after i mean in, in the 1890s there are fewer you know, he, he actually produced there's a sort of gap between the mid 1880s and the late 1890s um, when he's producing fewer millinery works. Then he comes back to millinery in the late 1890s. But most of those works, you know, aren't exhibited. They're, they remain in his studio until his death. For Degas in particular, are his portrayals of 
milliners and and women working in the shops sympathetic to labor? Should we think of these as as pictures of labor? I mean, that's a good question. You know, I've, I've thought about that actually. You know, it, it, I mean, Dugar, I, I don't feel that you know Dugar's work is never explicitly political. I, I don't, but 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 I mean, I don't think you can remove um, his work from the broader conditions of of their production and and you know and the broader political context. And so you know, if, if you look if you look at the works, you know, for example, of the 1880s and 1890s, I mean, this was a time when when there was you know significant agitation uh, for you know, increased wages and, and shorter working hours, you know, for for women, uh, particularly in the garment industry, there was a lot of discussion, for example, of, of the veille, you know, the night shift, uh, which which women, you, you know, would have have to work. So there were, you know, very, very different, uh, very difficult uh, working conditions for, for women, even though, you know, as I said earlier, the, the millinery was you know, milliners were seen as the elite workers in the trade. There were lots. There was quite a significant hierarchy within within millinery. So a lot of the the workers lower down in that hierarchy were, were, were you know were not paid well, and were, were, you know maybe you know, two two to four francs a, a, a day. So 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 not you know not 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 high wages. So so I think it's it, it is important to to place Dugas' work within within that context and. You know, I think he's he's without being explicitly political, he's arguing for the the status of the milliner, you know, the artistry of the milliner, uh, and, and you know, and for their their importance within, you know, Paris's wider society. He's not he's not he's not showing you know a crowded sweatshop. You, know, you don't see that where where you see, you know, the, a, a lot of the explicit problems around labour. There's it's generally more of a focus on on one or two figures, but I think he does you know he emphasises the importance of the status of the milliner. And finally, we've been talking mostly about Degas, but Mary Cassatt is here, and and Morisot, and Renoir, and and a number of Alfred Stevens, a number of others. Is there a significant difference in each of their interests in milliners and hats, or are they all kind of interested in the range of topics we've been discussing? I mean, it depends on on you know on, on the person you're you're talking about. I mean, I think Cassatt. Because that's an interesting example, because you know she was wearing a lot of these hats. She was shopping. She was shopping with uh, Degas. She's. I mean, she. It's somewhat surprising to me that she never actually represented, you know, Milner's creating hats. I mean, that that's kind of a a lacuna in, in a way in her in her output. But her her fascination with the materials of hats and and the wearing of hats uh, is something that certainly you can you know, you can relate to that of. Uh, of of Dugar, you mentioned Alfred Stevens. I mean, he, he's he's an artist who, uh, or like Tiso, uh, an artist who also treated similar kinds of of subjects. I mean, I I I see those, you know, their their work probably within a more kind of explicitly commercial context, and and certainly, you know, Tiso and Stevens in, enjoyed considerable commercial success with with their you know, work including millinery subjects in the seventies and eighties. And actually their you know, their career was that was a model for, for Dugar in many ways, who who certainly wanted commercial success himself. He wasn't somebody who you know who turned away from commerce. So so I think, you know, there are some 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 interesting comparisons you can draw. We haven't talked about Manet. You know, Manet's somebody who 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 Dugar, you know, greatly admired and we have a you know important Manet painting in the show which, you know, there's debate as to as to the, the, the space that's represented. But it also speaks to 
you know the closeness of, of Manny and Duga and the way that you know th those two artists too you know share shared their interest in in this key you know aspect of, of Parisian modern life. Manet's Cleveland painting of Berthe Morisot is is in the show. That's the kind of triangular painting that rises to to plumage. And you mentioned Tiso, the uh, Art Gallery of Ontario painting in the show is explicitly commercial in a number of ways, including that the woman owning or working in the shop is holding open the door for us. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly, yes, yeah, yeah. Simon Kelly, thanks so much. All right, thank you, Tyler. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Richard Sarah Prints, on view through April 30th. Showcasing over 45 years of printmaking by Sarah, an American sculptor best known for his large steelworks, the show reflects the artist's interest in process, the monumental, and a desire to push the boundaries of traditional printmaking methods and techniques. Learn more about the show at nashersculpturecenter.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Gail Stavitsky, the curator of Matisse and American Art at the Montclair Art Museum. The exhibition focuses on the impact Matisse's work has had on American artists. It features 65 paintings, sculptures, prints, and archival objects, and is on view in New Jersey through June 18th. Stavitsky curated the show with assistance from John Cowman and Lisa Mintz Messinger. The exhibition catalog was published by the museum, which offers it for $45 through its own website. We'll have a link right to it on manpodcast.com. Gail Stavitsky, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So American artists who were in Europe at the beginning of the 20th century certainly would have had the chance to see Matisse's work through a variety of avenues. In the catalog, for example, you, you chronicle the Stein Nexus or the Steins Nexus. I'm not sure if it's plural when it's, I'm not sure if Nexus is singular or plural, but people will follow. And Americans who stayed home, who were in the United States, would have had a chance to see Matisse's work a little later, probably starting in around 1913 or something. Earlier, Even actually. earlier. Even earlier. At they would have an opportunity, the first public opportunity, actually, at Alfred Stieglitz's Gallery 291 with the exhibition in 1908, which was Matisse's first solo exhibition in America. So do you think one of those lines of experience, staying home and seeing Matisse in the U.S. or going to Europe, played a greater role in determining how Americans responded to him? Yeah, I think I w would say that the role of travel artists actually staying in Paris for a while, like Alfred Maurer, for example, would be the real pioneer. He's often regarded as the first American fauve because as early as 1906, he was absorbing Matisse's style and landscapes 
especially that he was painting, like 1906, and we have one from 1908 in the show. So I think that kind of that experience of being in Paris and meeting Matisse, usually at the home of Leo and Gertrude Stein, or poss- you know, or also possibly Michael or and Sarah Stein. So I think that that was that that is the first part of our show really focuses on the students of Matisse as well, the people who studied directly with him, starting with Sarah Stein, the collector who took private lessons in 1907 and then was along with Max Weber among a group of artists who asked Matisse to start his short-lived school, which was in existence from 1908 to 1911. So I think that Paris experience was really critical, but then we we know that artists like William Zorak, for example, saw Matisse's show in 1908 because he wrote about it later in camera work and profound experience of a simpler, more archaic world that he experienced while seeing that show. So so there's a lot a lot going on all at the same time, stateside and in Paris. Moore is an interesting case. He wasn't in Collioure in 1905. So what was his relationship with the Fauves themselves, or was his relationship mostly with seeing the painting, say, at the Steins and elsewhere in Paris? His relationship was mostly with the the Steins. He was very close to Leo Stein and a story that he even kind of was like an informal tour guide of the Steins' apartment and uh, would show other American artists the, the work on view. So I think between probably what he saw publicly in galleries and the Salon d'Automne, but especially in the, the fauve work he would have seen at the Steins that had a big impact on him. It's interesting to me that Mars is gets his fauve work to America very quickly, I think in 1909. How was his fauvism received when it got here? It was... Not that well-received initially, I mean, that it was regarded as very radical. And, you know, which, of course, makes sense because... I mean, imagine those colors in the context of Bellows's muddy browns and greens, right? Right. Would have been a very different... Right, the Ashcan school. In other words, I think there's a parallel to how Matisse's work was originally received and this kind of epithet of Apostle of the Ugly (laughs) that was kind of attached to Matisse's work pretty early on. Although fairly early, people were also saying that his work was strangely beautiful. And certainly even by 1915, when Matisse had his first large-scale show in America at the Montrose Gallery, the tide was really already starting to turn by that time. And so he's already, you know, being acknowledged as a really important master. And I know earlier you mentioned the date of 1913. I think probably you were thinking of the Armory show, which was really the first, that was really the first opportunity to see a lot of Matisse's paintings. Because before then, at 291, there had only been one Matisse painting shown, which happily we 
feature in the exhibition, Nude in a Wood of 1906, which is in the uh, collection of the Brooklyn Museum. But it uh, really wasn't until the Armory Show that American artists could look at the work and have a, a, even more of an understanding of Matisse. However, um, what's also interesting about the Armory Show is we have two works by, two paintings by Walter Pock and a painting by Morton Livingston Schamberg that are very Matissean that were shown in the Armory Show. And so I always like to mention that because it dispels the myth that the Americans were just completely provincial and you know hadn't seen or absorbed modern art before the Armory Show and that their contributions to the Armory Show were provincial. So speaking of, of the Armory period, Blue Nude, Matisse's arguably greatest painting, causes that enormous kerfuffle when it comes to the U.S. Henry Hare mattress and so forth. The painting is burned in, in effigy. Does that painting motivate artists in America in the teens? I mean, the nude isn't much of a thing in American art at that point. Is there? Do you have ideas or do we see in the show how artists respond to what they considered a provocation or that provocation? Well, it is interesting that you mentioned the theme of the nude because um, Maurice Prendergast really especially embraced Matisse's nudes and also Walter Pock in a painting of bathers, which was shown in the Armory show. But um, Maurice Prendergast, even earlier, he we have a painting from around 1910, well, sort of given the date of 19, circa 1910 to 13, of nude bathers. And we also have, though, a sketch two sketchbooks, one even earlier from 1907. Prendergast was in Paris and he copied Leluc's one, although really very much from his own perspective, his own sense of line. It's not a, a slavish copy. So, you know, the Americans were responding pretty early to the theme of the nude. I mean, in terms of that specific provocation, I, I guess I can't think of a particular example, but I mean, certainly people were aware of Matisse's notoriety, although, again, I guess people mostly think of Duchamp's notoriety in the Armory show, but certainly uh, Matisse was equally, if not more so. uh, And of course, later on in the 20th century, a number of American artists made nudes indebted to Matisse. Tell me about the terrific Romare Bearden piece you have in the show. Romare Bearden piece called The Dream is from 1970. And he, of course, he went to Paris earlier than that and was already thinking about Matisse in in the 1950s. But we actually are featuring his piece in a section of the show devoted to Matisse's cutout aesthetic. And certainly Romare Bearden was among those artists who were uh, going to the Museum of Modern Art and looking at that late, that great show in 1961 that featured Matisse's late work and his cutouts. So in terms of what you were talking about, the theme of the nude, this work called The Dream features an an African-American odalisque 
And so it's fascinating because we juxtapose that work with a painting of a late painting of a nude by Tom Wesselman from 2004 and then Roy Lichtenstein's homage to Matisse's nude, reclining nude sculpture. So we're kind of featuring that exploration of that theme in, in that part of our show. The Wesselman is Sunset Nude with Matisse self-portrait from, from 2004. Like you said, the Lichtenstein is from 1997. We'll have images of, of both on manpodcast.com. One of the fun things about the Bearden is it seems to consciously, intentionally bridge both Matisse's cutout practice, if that's the right word, but also to make reference to things that I mean, lots of things that, that Matisse does as a painter, the, the arabesques in, in the foreground and in the lower right, and even, and even the colors. I mean, the nude, which Bearden presents in a way that references the African sculpture that Matisse was looking at in the, in the 1900s, is laid against a blue background as if, you know, Bearden was referencing 1907. It's, it's a phenomenal piece. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it is, and I think one that's not that well known. No, so no it's at the Newark really Museum is. most of the time. Yes, it is, and they don't, I think, don't really have the opportunity to show it that often, although it was in a recent show. They had 75 years of heroic African-American art, so... Yeah, it's it's a colored paper, so it, it comes with all the sensitivities one would one would expect. I thought one of the most interesting things about the catalog is the way that you repeatedly sourced painters in large, expansive fields of red back to Matisse's The Red Studio at MoMA. It's almost kind of a mini history within the history that is the show. What are a couple of the the big red paintings or paintings-ish that, that you were able to connect to to the famous Red Studio? So we have a literally a corner of the show, a large corner devoted to that topic. And so there are two American works, which we are pairing with Matisse's pianist and checker players from the 1920s. Uh, Obviously, since we couldn't get the Red Studio, I was thrilled to get this absolutely gorgeous painting that he did of the model Henriette Dari-Carrère. So another great Nice period painting that's got that same shade and hue of uh, warm red or various shades of that red in the the especially in the rug on the floor. If I can just fill in for listeners really quickly, that's the National Gallery painting from 1924. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. So that really was is the linchpin of that section. Every section of the show is anchored with the key Matisse, and that work is paired with Mark Rothko's number 44. And so I deliberately chose that work because it is from the year after Matisse died. It's, it's number and 44, Two Darks in Red. I think it's a great example from, uh, 1955. of that, uh, how he has uh, absorbed in many ways, or as he said, kind of becoming saturated with the color as if it were music, and how he's really absorbed that particular shade of, of red, which you see in a number of his works. There is a painting that, of course, I had hoped to borrow, which is an illustration in the catalog called Homage to Matisse, 
but that was not available. And, and, and ironically, that doesn't actually focus on the color red to the degree that this painting does. So I think it really ended up pairing beautifully with the Matisse and also with Helen Frankenthaler, uh, a relatively late work of hers, an acrylic on paper from 2002, an untitled work that I think really epitomizes how she uses the field of, of red. And we, of course, think of it as being like color stain painting, although it's not really stained in the paper. It's on t the acrylics on top of the paper. But just the way that she uses these very richly saturated areas of color, and then she has these very subtle inflections along the bottom and throughout these just these little, you know, accents and flecks of different reds that inflect the surface and enliven it in in such a way that she you know she's just figured out exactly where everything has to go and the whole notion of order harmony and beauty those values that she shares with Matisse were, were so important to her and the other thing I think is important about Frankenthaler is that she had a significant collection of Matisse's work, so she lived with his art as well. And finally, you mentioned a couple times the open window motif in Matisse's work and how American artists picked up on that. You could have gone Hartley. You went with someone else. Who did you go with, and, and who do you show us engaging that, that open window that fascinated Matisse so much? Sure, yes. We actually have an entire section of the exhibition devoted to that theme, and we have two Matisse paintings anchoring that part of the show, one being the uh, open window in, in Nice from 1917, 1918, and then what is right hanging right next to it is a Stuart Davis painting of his studio interior on the Upper West Side of New York from 1917, and it's kind of his own homage to Matisse's Red Studio, which he appreciated in the Armory show. So it's, I mean, it's a fairly small painting, so it doesn't have the scale, but it does have the use of red, especially in the way that he outlines objects in his studio. And of course, one of those objects is his record player. We can just imagine him listening to jazz. And so, in it, and then nearby, there is a pair of paintings, a work by Milton Avery from 1952, featuring his daughter March on a balcony in Saint Tropez. And that's actually paired with a late Matisse painting from 1947 of a nude in an interior, which really makes the great point that. Matisse, you know, by the late 40s, I mean, certainly he was already regarded as a modern master, but he was also seen very much as, as a living contemporary artist, someone who was still creating very dynamic work that was evolving. And even though that was, of course, one of his last paintings, and he would be focusing more and more on cutouts, uh, it's a wonderful painting, and it's the kind of work that was being shown at Pierre Matisse's gallery. I, th I always think that's fascinating that his own son, Pierre Matisse, who'd moved in the mid-20s to New York City, um, sets up such an important art gallery where 
Avery and and other New York school artists, you know, could see Matisse's work firsthand. And then also in that whole open window area, we have works by Arthur B. Carls, Hans Hoffman, Richard Diebenkorn, and Sophie Matisse, who's the artist's great granddaughter. And and even the Liechtenstein has an open French doors, not not quite a window, but yeah. more kind of an American an American suburban garden garden plan house type take on the <laughs> on the idea. Right, exactly. And I'm sorry, I should have remembered that. Although I have, the, I always it's have not like really a window, right? image it's... of the way the show is hung. <laughs> but you're right; it's definitely partaking of that theme as the you know the kind of bridge between the exterior world of nature and reality and the interior world of the studio studio and the artist. Great. Well, Gail Stavitsky, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Thanks so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.